This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. State and local politicians around the country have been trying to help their communities recover from the opioid addiction epidemic. And many of those politicians have set their sights on getting money from the companies that made and distributed the drugs that fueled so much of that addiction, filing lawsuits against those companies in courts across the U.S. The money from these lawsuits is starting to flow. This week, several drug companies reached a settlement for their alleged role in the opioid epidemic. And thousands more lawsuits are still in the works. But as all sides haggle over the details of settlements and compensation, some are learning lessons about what not to do from a similar case from 20 years ago. Today on the show, how the mistakes of the tobacco settlement are shaping the current opioid lawsuits. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. And I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Thursday, October 24th. Twenty seventeen was the peak of the opioid addiction crisis. And the rising death toll of Americans from overdoses and other opioid-related causes sparked a flurry of lawsuits from cities, counties, and states around the country. The suits broadly alleged that the pharmaceutical industry flooded communities with high volumes of opioid painkillers and marketed them without adequately warning about the risks. The states and municipalities that are suing the pharmaceutical industry are looking for compensation for the financial strain the opioid crisis has caused. It all comes down to everyone wants to help the communities and help people pull out of opioid addiction. Sarah Randazzo has been covering the opioid litigation for the last two years. These lawsuits have been pouring in from around the country. Some of the cases are being brought by attorneys general of states and others from local municipalities, which are represented by private plaintiff's attorneys. They're seeking compensation to go toward things like recovery programs. But while all those plaintiffs agree on suing the drug companies, they don't agree on what a payout should look like. And there's basically fights over where the money would go. Would it go directly to a state budget? Would it get to go directly to local budgets? And so everyone wants to make sure that whatever deal is struck gets the money to where they want it to go. And that's where a lot of the fighting has taken place. This deal could be huge. Sarah's sources say if there were one global settlement of these cases, it could be nearly $50 billion. And one federal judge in Ohio who is overseeing more than 2,000 of these cases has been trying to broker that deal. But disagreements between the different plaintiffs over what to do with the money is what's stopping it from going through. There's a group of state attorneys general, four in particular, who are really pushing a global settlement right now. But some of the private lawyers for the local governments don't like that deal. And so there's basically a lot of tension among all the the government entities that are suing over what they want to see in a deal and how much money they want to get. 
on the face of it, it would seem like the states and counties should be on the same team. They're both seeking remuneration from the opioid makers and distributors for harm caused by the addiction epidemic. Exactly, yeah. So really, all the government entities at the local and state level should be on the same side of the case, as you say. But there's been a lot of infighting among the different plaintiffs. And what has the judge said about all of this? Yeah, so he's said a couple times during hearings that basically he thinks all these cases are in his courtroom from the local governments because of tobacco and because this time around they all wanted to file their own lawsuits to make sure they didn't get cut out of the process. Local governments are worried about getting cut out of the process because they were burned once before. In the 1990s, tobacco companies were getting sued for their role in causing cancer and other illnesses. And back then, it was mostly state governments suing the tobacco companies. And that arrangement did not go particularly well for local governments. One Wall Street Journal reporter covered that case when it happened. So we asked him to come into the studio and tell us about it. My name is Gordon Fairclough. I'm the foreign editor at the Wall Street Journal. But uh, many years ago, I covered the tobacco industry. For how long did you cover them? I covered the industry for about six years, I think, in the late 90s, early 2000s. You never really leave tobacco. No. I no. Yeah, and it stays with you. Are you a smoker? No. <laughs> never? <laughs> never. Well, I no, that's not entirely true. I've smoked three cigarettes in my life. Back then, in the late 90s and early 2000s, Gordon was reporting on a massive settlement, largely between state governments and the major tobacco manufacturers like Philip Morris, R.J. Reynolds, and others. So the states had sued the tobacco companies trying to recoup the cost of caring for six smokers. And over the course of all of the settlements was roughly $246 billion that the cigarette makers agreed to pay over 25 years to state governments to settle all of that litigation. And were there any provisions in those settlements about where the money would go? There were not. And no parameters for how Nothing the money very would be. specific, no. And so what happened was a lot of states ended up with that money coming into their general budgets. And as you'll recall, in the early 2000s, we were going through a bit of an economic downturn. States were having trouble balancing their budgets and became increasingly reliant on this revenue from tobacco companies. And they were using it for what purposes? And we're using it to pave roads, to pay for schools, just, you know, general state government expenses. Those billions of dollars of settlement money originally intended for tobacco prevention, instead of going to local communities, much of it went to completely unrelated items in state budgets. And this settlement was meant to be paid out over 25 years which created a surprising relationship between the tobacco companies and the states. They kind of became codependent with the tobacco companies in a way, right? And it was an interesting unintended consequence of this settlement that it aligned the economic interests of the states with the economic interests of the tobacco companies. Essentially, the settlement payments depended on the continuing economic health of the cigarette makers and also the volume of cigarette sales. Not only had the settlement failed to direct money to just public health and anti-tobacco programming, but the states that had sued the tobacco companies in the first place now had a vested interest in keeping the companies strong enough to survive. 
This led states to intervene in unexpected ways. Like in 2003, when some states came to the help of Philip Morris in a major Illinois lawsuit. In that case, Philip Morris was ordered to post a $12 billion bond. After the verdict came down, Philip Morris said, well, that'll force us into bankruptcy. We'll declare bankruptcy. We're going to halt all of our payments to the states. And state finances were kind of in disarray in a number of states. In Vermont, I remember the attorney general there at the time saying, we've already spent that money. So if we don't get it, we're in real trouble. So there was an effort to get the Illinois state legislature to pass a law to protect Philip Morris, uh, to pass a law that would limit the amount that a company had to post as bond. Okay, so the states were incentivized to help Philip Morris. So what would you say are the lessons learned here? I think the lessons that tobacco control people learned from this was that there are a lot of unintended consequences to these kinds of settlements. Um, And you can see very clearly what happens when the interests of government are aligned with the interests of industry and these kinds of financial things, and sometimes then doesn't work out to be the way that you had hoped with the litigation. After the break, how the current opioid lawsuits could be shaped by the failures of the tobacco settlement. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. This episode is brought to you by Natrol. Natrol is America's number one drug-free sleep aid brand, helping you fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. Natrol melatonin gummies are made with clean ingredients, like 99% pure melatonin, to work with your sleep cycle, helping you sleep better, making the next day your best day. Natrol. Sleep tonight. Live tomorrow. Shop now at Natrol.com. This product helps with occasional sleeplessness. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent diseases. Welcome back. With the lessons of the tobacco settlement looming large, states and counties wrestled over what a settlement with opioid manufacturers might look like. And in the past month, those negotiations ramped up. As the federal judge in Ohio, Dan Polster, prepared to hear his first opioid case filed by two Ohio counties. The trial was slated to begin Monday, and so in the week leading up to the trial, a group of attorneys general floated a deal, one of these global deals that they were trying to reach with several companies. And so Judge Polster said, okay, let's bring everyone together on Friday, and then the judge split them all into groups. And so basically you had the companies in one room in the courthouse, you had the attorneys general in another, and the private lawyers in a third, and then the judge was shuttling between them, trying to get everyone on the same page. And where were you? Yeah, so yeah, meanwhile, the reporters were out in the hallway. They obviously wouldn't let us in the room. So what came of these negotiations? Again, hours were going by, and we were trying to get a sense of what was happening. And they started around 9.30 in the morning, and then at around 7.30, it seemed like people were starting to trickle out, didn't look super happy. And so then the four attorneys general, suddenly they all appeared and stood in front of us all in a row with their gaggle of people behind them. And 
the North Carolina Attorney General started by saying, you know, that he was deeply disappointed that the cities and counties refused to go along with the deal and that the holdup was because of them. This would have helped the entire nation, not just a few counties, not just a few cities. And as they were talking, the private lawyers came out of the room they were in, and Joe Rice, the, the plaintiff's lawyer from South Carolina, he made some remarks saying he, you know, he thought it was unfortunate that they were blaming them, and so everyone had their finger pointed in a different direction all out in this hallway um, in this federal courthouse. On Monday, a limited settlement was announced to resolve the case involving those two Ohio counties. But whether there will be a bigger global settlement for the thousands of remaining cases is still an open question. States are still pushing for one. They want to avoid a scattershot process in which counties and cities reach agreements one by one over many years. So earlier this week, to garner support from skeptical counties and cities, states presented a $48 billion plan. They said the plan would avoid repeating the mistakes of the tobacco settlement. The states have said that this time around, they really are committed to making sure money goes toward treatment facilities and services to help foster kids and, you know, things that are really going to help with solving the opioid problem. And so they've acknowledged that they're not going to let that happen this time around. In fact, in a call with reporters on Monday to discuss the state proposal, the Attorney General of Pennsylvania made direct reference to the legacy of the tobacco settlements. None of us want to see this money going to fill potholes. None of us want to see this money wasted in, you know, budgets either at the state or local level. That's him directly addressing these criticisms that had come out of tobacco and saying, we want this money to go directly toward helping the problem. One big part of this global settlement that's been proposed is that it would be paid out over 18 years. And the vast majority of the money, 70 percent, would be earmarked for treatment programs and other things. Another 15 percent under the current proposal would go straight to state budgets. And then the last 15 percent would go to local city and county budgets where they could probably have a little more leeway to do what they want with it. But this 70% of it, they intend to try to direct toward solving uh, the problem of opioid addiction. Is there a sense that these private plaintiff's attorneys are part of the problem? I mean, that's certainly the narrative that the attorneys general are trying to push. I think they find it very easy to try to scapegoat private lawyers because it's just easier for them to say, oh, we're government employees, but these guys are contingency fee lawyers looking for a payday in the end. But I do think a lot of the private lawyers have worked very hard on these cases. And so they have been in the trenches and really litigating these cases. And so understandably, they're a little annoyed that now these states who really haven't been as aggressive on it are trying to come in and take control when they're the ones who have been you know, pushing to get all these internal documents and databases made public and learning how these companies worked. Does it seem like the counties and that the the local municipalities and the states will be able to find common ground to arrive at a global settlement? We'll see. Right now, the deal that's on the table was the same as the one that was on the table Friday that the local governments didn't like. So for the local governments to come on board, they still may have to shorten the time frame and pay out the money quicker instead of this 18 years that they've proposed. But they'll all find agreement at some point because really the only alternative is to continue preparing cases for trial for the next zillion years. And ultimately, people will get tired of that and someone will break and and reach a settlement at some point. Does it seem like things will still play out in a similar manner to the tobacco settlement? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think it's going to be a lot different in terms of 
where the money goes and how it's earmarked. And since it's not just the state attorneys general this time, you know, it won't just be an amount of money split 50 ways. It'll be a lot more complicated math. But I think definitely people have learned the lessons from tobacco and are very focused on making sure this money isn't wasted this time around. The question is just, can money help that problem? Certainly it can help go into treatment programs and other things. But, you know, addiction is obviously a complicated problem that needs more than just money to solve it. That's all for today, Thursday, October 24th. The Journal is produced by Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.